You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. All right. Good to see everyone here. I'm here with Monsignor McGee. He was one of my professors at St. Charles Borromeo. One of the things I want to do with Art of Living Well uh, with longer form content is to bring on experts and theologians. You guys have been introduced to Father Dennis Billy before. Now I want to bring you, and, and mostly because these are the people that inspired me when I was in seminary. They, they're teaching, they're, they're grasped with theology. And as Monsignor McGee knows, I call him constantly. I'm constantly texting him, asking him questions. So I figured it would be good to bring people in on that conversations that we have. Because I think most people, if they heard our conversations when we were discussing topics, I think they would be, they would like it. So that was kind of the, the thing that inspired me to do this. Before we jump into the questions, can you tell a little bit about your background, where you studied? Just let us know a little bit about yourself. Sure, Father Ian, it's good to see you. I, I, uh, you're right, we speak a lot on the phone, but I don't often see you. And uh, so I was, uh, I studied here at the seminary where I now teach and where I'm now in the uh, School of Theological Studies, which is the lay formations uh, part of the seminary. And uh, so I was ordained in 1991 uh, as a priest of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. From 1994 to 2007, I was in Rome, the first uh, uh four years I was working, I was studying at the Pontifical Biblical Institute and the Gregorian University. And then for the last nine years, I was working in the uh, Congregation for Divine Worship uh, of the uh, Holy See of the Vatican. And so for the last, um, now going into, going on 14 years, uh, I've been teaching here at St. Charles Seminary. Absolutely. And you've published, you've, you've published theological articles written over the years and done a lot of research after my dissertation which was on the patriarchal institution especially the eastern church uh i would i'd say about an article a year and uh, with with teaching that's about as much as i can manage heck yeah all right so let's jump right in so the first one we want to get into is this question of truth and so before we get into your thoughts on it you know i think there's a lot of confusion right now i think we should try to define what are the main views that some people have about truth? I think many times when people hear the concept truth, they'll hear people say, speak your truth. or And it, it kind of relates to this idea that whatever is my experience is true, that that's the truest thing is what I experience, my perspective. But that's not exactly the Catholic view of truth. And that's not necessarily the classical view. Could, could you unpack that a little bit? And what do you think it relates to the field, well, well, fundamental theology. First, let's start with truth. Then we'll talk a little bit about fundamental theology. So I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Sure. I think for a lot of people, truth is the sum total of their sensations, the things that they perceive. Uh, it's it's the, the way they would like to look at the world. And so they, they do say, uh, often you'll hear people speak about my truth versus your truth. But not only is that the, not the Catholic understanding of truth, it's not, I don't even think it's a humanly satisfying understanding of truth. If your truth is what's coming from inside of you, uh, you can never be surprised by anything. You can never uh, approach the world with wonder as, as, it's, as a discovery of something outside of yourself. And most importantly, you can't make contact with 
the, with the one who speaks to us from beyond uh, in his in his revelation. And so uh, I think um, you know there's there's this notion of uh, of relativism that uh, Pope Benedict spoke so eloquently about, even on, in the mass. Uh, uh, at the conclave that was preparing to elect him as, as Pope, when he talked about the dictatorship of relativism. For a lot of people, I think it sounds tyrannical if, if there's something out there that anyone says is absolute truth, independently of what you think. And yet it, it's precisely the ability to discover that truth, which is independently of us, that liberates us. And if you don't have that, then there's no way to, to be liberated from whatever point of view is imposed most powerfully by governments or by anyone who has the power to mold public opinion. We become uh, at the mercy of, of those ideas and those people. And so the, the, the notion of truth is something to be discovered uh, and is ultimately is something revealed to us by God, both in nature and in his supernatural revelation is a very liberating concept. Huh? Wow, man, that was deep, <laughs> Monsieur. That was awesome. I want to, I want to actually flesh out one of the parts of that, the liberation part of it. I never heard it put that way. So you're seeing liberation. It seems like if I'm hearing this correctly, liberation is something outside of yourself because it draws you towards something that's outside of yourself. Or it, it, if you're if you're trapped within your own thinking, and only fulfillment you have is within, there's nothing that's calling you from without. It seems like to be that's the point you're making. Can you flesh that out a little bit? I'm curious. You're like well, the, the thing that comes to mind, I, I remember, and I'd, I'd like to to connect the idea of truth, specifically moral truth, really, uh, with freedom. Um, the 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 great moment that came to mind when you were asking that question was a moment in the life of the great King David of Israel, when, if you want to say what his truth was, he saw a beautiful woman that had to be his wife. Um, it just the, the only problem was she was someone else's wife. And so in order to fulfill what he wanted to see happen, he used his power as king to arrange it so that uh, her husband would be uh, put up in front of the battle and would be uh, left, uh, the, the army would pull back and strike him down dead. Uh, the, the enemy would strike him down dead. And then the woman would, but this was of course after he had uh, had relations with her and, and she conceived a child. So he was also trying to cover up his, his, the, the, the very unpleasant truth of his, of his own sin. But God's prophet came into David and he told him a parable uh, that uh, sounded as if he were talking about someone else, but he was really describing what David himself had done. And in indignation, David said uh, that the, the man who had done this terrible deed should die. And the prophet said to him, you, David, are that man. You know, the, the reason I bring that out is um, you have a prophet speaking about what is absolutely true, what is right and wrong from the standpoint, not of any human subject, but of God. And you have him coming into the most powerful man in the kingdom to say, you are wrong. You have done wrong. You must repent. You know, if there is no way that we can point to an authority higher than ourselves, even higher than any earthly government, there's no possibility of doing that. Only the fact that God stands above even all forms of human power, uh, only because of that is it possible 
to appeal to something that is beyond us and even beyond those who might have power over us uh, and to, to really be free. Uh, that's why it's this, this, uh, this possibility of appealing to absolute truth beyond our own wishes and beyond human powers is the only way that we can really be free. Absolutely. And, and interestingly enough, when you mentioned the King David example, I thought of that phrase that's loved by a lot of activists, but it's understood in a different light, which is speak truth to power. Right. And so what normally the world says when they say speak truth to power is take your subjective experience and speak your experience to power in a way that kind of gets advances your goals. But really what the prophet does, he doesn't speak to his experience. He speaks to something outside of both of them, independent of them. Truth is independent of either of their subjectivity. It's a reality that they're grounded in and God's law is revealed. And that's an interesting, I think, difference, right? That's true. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that there are actually some uh, philosophers that have gained more, in, uh, more power over people than, than people really, uh, even realize. There are people like uh, Sartre and, and Michel de Foucault, and they may never, have never even heard those names. And yet they end up falling into the same ideas that those philosophers touted. You know, an idea such as the, the fact that, or the claim that there really is no such thing as absolute truth, that really we construct our truth, we, by constructing language, we, we use language as a, as a weapon uh, to achieve uh, what we want. The only real truth is the agenda that we push and we, uh, we fashion language and names and, and words in such a way as to promote that. Um, but really, what that does is to break us apart and leave us uh, just to be uh, just into in a struggle to see who is the one who can is powerful enough to impose his own will or her own will on the rest of us. Um, if there is a, a truth that's beyond us all, then our freedom together lies in seeking that truth together and looking beyond us all to, to find that truth. If, if that transcendent point is missing, then we're just locked in a, in a struggle to the death among ourselves and there's no truth beyond us. Agreed, agreed. And, and one of the things I wanna, now I'm gonna riff on this a little bit. Now I'm not gonna pretend like I'm a Heidegger scholar or phenomenologist scholar, but I was reading Heidegger recently and his whole thing, his critique of phenomenology was dealing with this sense of revelation. How do we get at the truth of things, um, the, the deeper truth, the, the metaphysical truth? He doesn't call it metaphysical, but like the, 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 the things beyond the surface. And we know with people that you only know as much as somebody's willing to reveal. Like if, if I'm not willing to tell you my name, you may not know my name unless you do a Google search. But I mean, obviously like an interpersonal sense. And there's this sense of revelation and truth. Could you speak to, that's kind of, it was a long way of, way of getting around to that. Speak on revelation and truth. Cause I think one of the fundamental things that we believe as Christians, as Catholics, is that the ground of all re reality reveals himself as a personal God. Right. And reveals our true nature. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. And in fact, I'm really glad you brought up the interpersonal 
aspect of it all, because I think that's really crucial. When we're talking about absolute truth, we're not just talking about some objective state of things out there, some impersonal reality, some set of rules that we all just have to conform to. We're talking about someone. The absolute reality, the absolute truth is God's personal reality, you know, and, and let me just put it first on the context of, uh, of interpersonal relations among human beings. You know, so I, I never met my grandfather. He died uh, two years before I was born, maybe three years before I was born. And I saw pictures of him. I saw, um, I heard stories about him. But suppose I had just decided you know, even, even at that, especially since we believe that people after they pass from this life are still living, um, I have a relationship with my grandfather, even though I never met him in this world. But what is that relationship? Suppose I just decided, well, I'm going to construct him as I choose. And I'm going to relate to that grandfather of mine um, that I have constructed in my mind. I, I will see him as I, as I wish. Well, my grandmother was still around uh, when I was uh, up until uh, the time that I was uh, in my 30s. And, uh, you know, she would be there to say, well, that's all well and good, but I knew him. He's a real person. Uh, and this is the way he was. I'd be ridiculously stupid not to, uh, to listen. I, I want to know him as he really is. Um, and not just to, to relate only to some figment of my imagination. God himself has revealed himself to us in two different ways. First of all, he's, he's revealed himself in creation, and he's, he's created all the things around us, including our very selves, and given them to us as his gift. And he's also, as we believe in the, in the church, he's also revealed himself to us in supernatural ways by speaking in human words through the scriptures, by becoming a man and speaking to us in the person of Christ. You know, to say that we relate to God simply out of our own choice about what we want him to be for us is really equivalent to saying we don't believe he's really there, that we, we, we want to worship a God of our own construction. Well, you know, that's just a, a sort of fancy way of doing in our own time what the idolaters did in ancient times when they wanted to make a god out of wood or metal. Um, I can make a god out of my own ideas, but that's not a real god. The real god is the one who speaks to me in a way that's completely unpredictable to me, who calls me in ways that I might not have even expected, and calls me forth in, in freedom to respond to what he says and to respond to his invitation that I might not even have expected. Absolutely. And I, I find it funny because, you know, I find this a lot pastorally is that people will not know the scriptures and they'll make all kinds of assumptions about God. And then ironically, I, I was just saying this to a sister who was visiting. I said, right now, one of the most radical things you can do is to teach the Bible and to teach it, especially even the New Testament, to teach it as it is written. There's a startlingness to it. Um, I mean, I, I've even found this like when, when I'm counseling somebody um, where you talk about, you know, I mean, for example, when somebody's struggling with illness or they're struggling with disease and you're being pastorally and you're trying to help them to come to a place of freedom. And you, you mentioned St. Paul, to me, death is gain and life is work. You know, this idea of, of looking forward to, 
the next life to come. There's so much in scripture that startles our hearts. And I, I, would, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Um, I don't sure. know if that's, yeah. yeah. There's a, you know, when we're relating to anyone that's close to us, there are often moments when they startle us and we think, why in the world did you do that? It, sound, it seems harsh, it seems wrong. And we, fo we follow and we listen to them. And then eventually sometimes we realize, well, I didn't get it at the time, but now I understand what you were saying. Now I understand why you acted that way. Now I understand why you asked that of me. With God, the, the same things happen, uh, especially since he's so far beyond us. We see things in scripture that we don't understand. We see him asking things of us that may seem harsh to us at the time. And we don't realize that he actually knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, and so we have on a much grander scale, the same kind of experience as when we hear things from others in our own concrete uh, experience that we, that we don't understand. Uh, we just come to know over the course of our lives and over trusting him over a long period of time that he did and does know us better than we know ourselves. Something he asks of us that might seem to hurt or that might seem to ask us to make a sacrifice that we don't feel uh, we want to make or that may not even feel capable of making. We find out if he's asking it, first of all, he'll, he'll make sure that we're capable of doing it. And we'll find that when we gave up everything he asks us to give up, we actually end up with more than we would have ended up if we kept everything for ourselves. Absolutely. And I wanted to build on that because I want to bring it back to this whole point of liberation that you made earlier. So St. John the Cross has a, a saying, and it's in the Ascent of Mount Carmel. He says, to come to know what you, to come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. I think one of the ideas that when you're talking about liberation is we are being, we are being drawn out of ourselves towards a goal that is completely beyond us. But yet God will provide the grace we know this is divinization, deification, but the, it's interesting that process is we have to surrender. If we stay stuck within ourselves, if we insist on our felt experience and speaking our own truth, we'll never get there because we, we have to let go of things. We have to die to self. We have to be stretched beyond ourselves. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because you teach sure. that in the theology of grace. Yeah, you know, even our senses can sometimes deceive us. You know, some, if you see uh, something, uh, if you see a straight rod that's stuck into water and it's refracted, it looks like it's a different shape than it actually is. If we see things at a certain time of the day, uh, when colors affect the way we see things, we might see them differently than they actually are. So our senses can deceive us. All the more can our emotions deceive us and our, what we think are our deepest desires deceive us. Uh, and so, uh, and that's especially true when we, when we take into account the fact that there is an enemy of God and an enemy of ourselves who is, who is it, it, it has some influence in the world and on us. Uh, we can sometimes, what we think is true can sometimes be downright lies. And it's the one who uh, frees us from lies is the one who truly frees us. To, to say that um, I want to be able to hold on to my lies, that I feel comfortable right now with these lies, um, is, is really to, to doom myself to a, a prison that if I could see clearly, I would want to be free of. Absolutely. Great stuff. Let's continue on. 
Let's get into the next. Um, so we're talking about a little bit what God reveals and the revelation. And, and one of the things that, that's important topic right now is the idea of transgenderism, uh, what is human nature, things like that. I want to throw this idea out for you. Um, so it was interesting. In my time at SUNY Albany, um, I, I would go to lectures because I was that kind of guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a lecture by a professor. Um, he was friends with Jacques Derrida. And he's in the French literature department. And he came out with his thesis for his book that he was presenting to the faculty of the English department and the philosophy department was the idea of the body as a prosthetic attachment. That is, the body is not truly who we are and that we can, that it's just an attachment that we can remake in whatever image that we want. And this touches a lot upon a lot of the ethical issues, right? With transgenderism, we can choose our own sex. We can, we can take off our arm and add a new one if we want, all these different things. But before we get into some of those, what's, how do we address this whole issue of nature? Yeah, well, I was gonna mention the idea of human nature, really, because that's really at the core of it. The idea of human nature is, is really that uh, the, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be this particular human being that I am, is, is something that's not of my own making, but that is a given. That I, I receive it as a gift. You know, I don't receive it as a prison. I receive it as a gift from God. If we believe that God has created us, then even our very existence is coming from him. And our essence is coming from him. And that essence, really, uh, until this era that we're living in, uh, human beings could see clearly that part of that essence of being a human being is that we are either male or female, and that that is a gift to us, uh, that our, our, all of our, our sexuality and everything that makes up our, our desires and our willing and knowing, all of this is a, is a gift. Um, but there's this very unfortunate way of thinking that has come in in the course of the 20th century that human nature is not fixed, that uh, it's my task, it's my, uh, it's my prerogative and, and my uh, obligation even to create who I am as, as if out of thin air with, at every moment, that there's nothing that's given to me by God that uh, that whole idea of being given by God is seen as somehow sort of a straitjacket, and so I, I, I'm not able to receive it. Not to be able to receive gifts of great beauty from God, because I choose instead to say that I, I refuse that gift and I want to create something in its place, is to, not only to cut ourselves off from God, but it's even to cut ourselves off from ourselves. Because really, if, if, what, if who I am and uh, everything that makes up who I am is God's gift to me, then to choose to reject it is ultimately the most profound form of self-rejection. People may think that that is what brings them happiness or that's what will bring them happiness. But this is, this is where we draw the lines. Uh, and in a certain way, I guess the only way we could say prove it is try to live this way and you're going to be profoundly miserable. Uh, and if you, meanwhile, well, we hold out trying to live your life, uh, believing that everything you have, including your very self, 
is a gift of God that you can't change, but the, that you can either accept lovingly and gratefully or choose to reject. Choosing it lovingly and choosing to live according to what God has given you is the most profound way to, to real happiness. Yeah, and I think it touches on, I think this is tying back to your initial comment about truth and liberation, that right. liberation being outside of the prison of your own ego, the prison of your own felt experience. And that's, that's a fundamental, and the fundamental difference between, and I've never actually thought about it this way, and I'm glad you fleshed this out because this is a new idea for me, is my happiness is in being drawn out of myself towards a goal that is beyond me versus looking inward and trying to please my my, 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 my emotions or what my felt experience is. So what we're saying, like, for example, if we are talking to a transgender youth with gender dysphoria, we might say to them, or we might help them along a process of saying, I have to accept where I'm at, but I have to, I have to embrace a process of transformation of stepping outside of myself and conforming to truth and reality which is not just how I see things. Because right now, with gender dysphoria being a mental illness, it's like you, you said, our senses can deceive us. Our perceptions can deceive us. Um, I'm not sure if this is all making sense. Did you have anything to add to that? Or do you want to say anything with that? Or yeah, the, what, I, what I want to say is I hear you talking about that. It's, the, it's just the idea that comes into mind. It's maybe saying something more than what I've said already that, that I think is important is uh, it's, it's one thing to, uh, uh, to say we can be deceived by our feelings, and it's completely a different thing. And it's important to make the distinction to say that our feelings are real. You know, I, I wouldn't for a minute want to say that uh, it doesn't happen to people who um, have uh, maybe, um, maybe, maybe a man uh, feels uncomfortable as a man or a woman feels uncomfortable as a woman, a man may be attracted to other men, a woman to other women. These things happen, and, but it's, it's, and it, would be, it would not be truth to think that in order to be somehow whole, one has to really deny that this happens or to deny what I'm feeling. Um, no, we don't have to deny what we're feeling, but what's crucially important is not to identify what we're feeling or what we're thinking at a given moment with who we are. You know, that, that really it's so important to realize that who I am is something far deeper than my feelings, no matter how strong those feelings may be, that who I am is something far deeper than what I want. And so I think it's, it's very important that a person will be able to say at any given moment what they're feeling and what they're, uh, what they're wanting. And uh, in a certain sense, that's something that happens to me, that, that's, but it's not who I am. That who I am is a, is a gift on the deepest level from God. And that is something I cannot change. I can choose what I want to do with it. But I can't change on the most profound level who I am as the, as the soul, as the person, body and soul that God has made me to be. Yeah. And when you talk about this gift and this receiving, your identity and your nature is received as a gift. This gets at the heart of mercy. I was reading this with Aquinas 
And Aquinas, the metaphysical ground of mercy, the, the first aspect of mercy is that we're created, that God creates us out of nothing and he, 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 he makes us as a gift. Um, I think you, you started to hit on that. Can you extend a little bit this, because this theology of gift, it's, it's very radical. Like even our salvation, we don't earn our salvation. It's freely given. And then we respond to that salvation. But this gets at the heart of mercy. I don't know if, I, don't, you, I know you weren't necessarily prepared to talk about that, but could you tie that in a little bit? Or, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but just throwing it out there. Sure. I mean, first of all, the idea of, of gift and, um, and accepting ourselves as a gift, you know, choosing to do that every moment uh, is a certain, there's a certain element of surprise. I can't help but always come back to this idea of surprise and how important it is, you know, for children before they become jaded. Uh, nice surprises are one of the most important things or one of the most pleasant things for people. Maybe when we get older, we don't like surprises. We want to control everything. <laughs> uh, but, but for children, being able to discover something that's a, especially a gift that's a surprise is a wonderful thing. Well, you know, we, we close off our, if we are always open to what God is asking of us, uh, then we uh, are not able to receive that surprise anymore. Uh, one of the most important surprises to be able to receive uh, is the kind that happens when we not only feel guilty, but it comes clearly to mind that I have done something wrong. I have made a very bad decision. I have done something that I might not even known it at the time hurt someone, that someone might have even been myself. Um, and how can I possibly be forgiven? How can I possibly uh, forgive myself? That's when the most life-giving surprise that we can receive is that we find that there is a God who has been watching us the whole time. He's been sustaining us in existence, even while we were sinning. He's been upholding us because he know, he has a plan for us that he knows we can't destroy, that he can always lead us back to where we need to be. And to realize, even despite what I may have done that was totally contradictory to his will and his law, even what I might have done that somehow was destructive of myself, he is holding up the way to, to me to forgiveness, to a better future, this is, this is mercy. And he's doing it not because I deserve it, but he's doing it because his love for me, that is that something beyond me that I can't touch, that I can't change. His love for me is something that is more powerful than anything I could do, including any sin. Uh, and it's not based on what I have done or what I haven't done. It's, it's based on who he is. And I can't change that. You know, to, sometimes I think when I think I'm, uh, when people come to confession or, or when they feel profoundly guilty or, or unable to shake that, they feel, well, I've done something that makes God not love me anymore. We don't have that power. You know, and to, to discover that we don't have that power, to discover that, to discover that love that's beyond our capability even to understand, and much more beyond our capability to change. Uh, that's the surprise that, uh, of, of mercy that is 
eternally life-giving. That's awesome. Heck yeah. I, oh, um, continuing on. So this is great stuff. Um, so actually, b- let me check real quick. Um, we're about a half hour in. Let's see if there's any comments. Is anybody commenting, Tim? Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jorge, for the comment. Um, so there's no other comments. I should say, we probably should have said this early on, for folks who are watching, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear that. We should have probably brought that up before. You can fire away. He's a theologian, so that means he's just able to fire off answers. Not <laughs> Actually, you can. And he, you can do a pretty good job of that. Um, all right, let's jump in. So I want to get into this notion of church, but actually you're kind of an interesting expert on orthodoxy and the relationship with Catholicism. I wanted, this is funny, a little funny segment. I don't know if you heard about this, but on Twitter, no offense to Tim, Tim's not Catholic, he's Protestant. Uh, we, we brought this up before, he's non-dominational. One of the non-dominational pastors, he said, you know, all churches are not permanent. Churches are not permanent. He said, in fact, the churches founded by St. Paul are no longer around. Well, that really torqued the Orthodox. And so they introduced this non-dominational pastor to all the bishops of the churches founded by St. Paul in Corinth. Uh, and Corinth. <laughs> <laughs> at least today, for sure. Because <laughs> all the churches established by St. Paul still exist, I believe, right? right? Except maybe... Most of, uh, a lot of them, yes. Yeah, um, because, I mean, well, but even the other ones, they had been absorbed into other dioceses, right? right. Yeah. So, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about, the, so we're going to talk about the, the church as a divine versus a human institution, which is something that's it's really tricky theology. And I remember this class, it was one of my favorite classes was ecclesiology with you. And so I remember it like it was yesterday. But jump in a little bit. I mean, you can start with the historical or you can start with just the theology, whatever direction you want to take. Talk to us a little bit about the church. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I'll start out with what you were saying, because uh, when I was growing up, I sort of had the same idea, more or less, that uh, I, t- I saw church as an organization. And so uh, the, the organizations that the apostles uh, set up in these towns and villages in Asia Minor, most of what was then Asia Minor is now Turkey. So a lot of them are uh, under a Muslim rule, the Turkish rule. And so I, I saw the, the concrete aspect of the church as more or less a transient part. And the, the church in a, in a more divine sense is, is something invisible, something beyond our sight. And it never would have occurred to me that, uh, uh, well, I, when I went to Italy for the first time, that was a really uh, powerful experience in my life. Um, I, I had the attitude that... Uh, I wanted to see what the early, when I read the Acts of the Apostles, I thought, well, that's, there's the church uh, in, in purity. This is the church the way it was uh, in the time of the Apostles. That should be our model. We should, we should be seeking to be as much like the early church as possible. And I was a Methodist myself at the time. And uh, so uh, it, it was, and, and where, where it was, um, what was beneficial to me actually was that the Methodist church uh, really 
was willing to let you seek and, and, and wasn't really uh, very strong about saying any particular uh, way is the only way and how dare you even look at anything. Little did it, anyone suspect though that where, where I just felt drawn to look eventually was the Catholic Church because I, I went um, to Rome and um, I was shocked during the course of our travel to find that uh, St. Peter's tomb was there in the Vatican. And uh, just a little while earlier in the same uh, trip, I had realized that uh, St. Mark, who wrote the gospel, was buried in Venice. Uh, and these things just, they, they disturbed me because I, I thought, uh, how can these tombs of the apostles be uh, not only in churches that are there today, but both in the Catholic Church? And... Uh, so it really made me start to look more at the Catholic Church. And when I learned the ideas of apostolic succession, the fact that the bishops of today are the successors of the apostles, and specifically that the, the Bishop of Rome is the successor of St. Peter, then it, it, it was a kind of very concrete continuity that was much more than I expected. Uh, and uh, it, it, I, I came to see the Catholic Church is the most amazing institution in human history. There is no other institution that's still around today that was, was around in the time of the apostles. There are religions that are around, Buddhism and, uh, and uh, Judaism, for instance, but they're, they're not the same organic institution. And yet the... Uh, the, the single unbroken line of popes, the succession of the apostles, maybe start looking and see much more in the Catholic Church. That being said, I began to see the, uh, the church as, as much more than simply an organization, much more than a club. You know, any organization, any club is going to uh, have a natural lifespan and, and it's going to fall out of existence. But uh, I was intrigued and more and more as time went on by the tendency of Catholics to speak of the church as our mother, the church as she, uh, and, and to see the church not even in terms of the ones who hold authority, um, who come and go uh, one after the other, but as this supernatural reality, this super personal reality that's brought into being by Christ that is always the same, even as, as her children fail her, even as sometimes the leaders and rulers uh, in the church fail us and fail the church. Nevertheless, she moves through, through the centuries untouched by that. And uh, that, that supernatural quality of the church is really what... Uh, is what captivated me when I was 20 years old, and now that's uh, 38 years ago. Almost to the day, by the way. Not December 7th, uh, 1981 is the day that I came into the Catholic Church. Oh, wow. I was, I was one years old then. <laughs> oh, you didn't have to say that. <laughs> so, Monsignor, uh, you know, I, I just remembered a distinction you made that I think would be good for people to flesh out right now, because... It never occurred to me that people are struggling with this when it comes to the authority of the church. 
you made a distinction in ecclesiology between, I, I can't remember the Latin phrases, but basically that which is handed down, maybe traditium. The, the, the well, there's traditio, which is the handing on of the faith. And then I said the traditum is that which is handed on. And the tradentes are those who uh, are involved in the process of handing it on, the, those who, who actively hand on the faith. I think it's a good distinction for people to, to know right now because there's just a lot of struggles, there's a lot of questions. Without getting into any, any particular issue, could you make that distinction? Could you flesh that out a little bit for our audience? that might help them to understand how, how the truth is passed down from generation to generation. So there's the, 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 the person of the, of the bishops, the priests, and the pope. There's that which is being handed down, and there's the process by which it is handed down. Right. Can you flesh that out a little bit for folks? For right. And, and what's, what's really at issue in that whole process is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit yeah. that that which is being handed on from age to age will never be corrupted even by any human beings, even by those who may be in authority, um, and that will be handed on intact uh, to every succeeding generation so that it will be accessible to them, and they will be able to enjoy the guarantee of the truth throughout all ages. Now, for the sake of, of safeguarding that, yes, there are some in the church, uh, especially the pope and the bishops, who have a unique kind of authority and a guarantee, uh, but really the, the guarantee really belongs to the church, not to them. Uh, really, the, when we talk about the infallibility of the Pope, the infallibility of the, of the bishops teaching together, really what that, it's, it's really the infallibility of the church in the sense that the guarantee is that even popes and bishops will never be able to corrupt the contents of the faith that are being handed on from generation to generation. Uh, they, at times, they may be even flawed in their own personal understanding of things. They may be flawed in, in their individual teaching. But there are moments when the Pope and the bishops together uh, have the capacity in a council or the Pope acting alone to bind every member of the faithful to a particular teaching, to define it in a solemn way so that this must be accepted for the sake of, of being in communion with the church, we have the assurance that they will never be allowed by the Holy Spirit to use those, uh, that authority that they have to bind people in the church to error. That uh, It doesn't mean that there's never error that is, a, is going around in the church, but it does mean that when we follow uh, faithfully everything that is set forth in a solemn way by the church to be believed, we will never be forced into accepting error because the Holy Spirit will not allow that. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. And, and getting and continue on. So we talked about that aspect of tradition and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Can you explain to us a little bit? So I remember this point we talked about with Delu Bach. We talked about that the church is both human and divine. And, and there's the analogy of faith where we look at other, other truths of the faith. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Because we would say there's a certain sense the church is similar to Christ. Of course, there's a difference in the two, but can you, I mean, I'm not doing the best job of explaining. I'm kind of leaving it up to you. I could probably write it out. If I, if I had to write a paper, I could still write it out. But, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I, I would say that that tension, uh, that unity of the human and the divine really 
starts in the person of our Lord himself. You know, we're saved not by the fact that God is God, but by the fact that God became man. Um, after we had fallen into sin, God himself took on our human nature and spoke to us through that human nature and in human words so that we would be able to receive his teaching, to, to, to understand him. It's by that unity of humanity and divinity in the person of our Lord that we are saved and that we come to the knowledge of the truth. But really everything that is in the Catholic faith is permeated by that same unity and distinction between humanity and divinity. In the sacred scriptures, God has spoken to us. It's God's word, but it's coming to us in human words so that we can receive it. When he brought the church into being, the church is a human institution. Yes, the church is a human institution, just as the scriptures are human words. But when we accept the scriptures as human words, we don't accept them as only human words. They are human words that are guaranteed by God to be giving us his truth. The church is a human institution, but one that has been brought into being and kept in unity by God's spirit in such a way that God is, makes himself present to us through the church in ways that he guarantees, regardless of any flaws that may be in the human beings who make up the church. He gives us the sacraments so that in the sacraments, his divine grace comes to us flawlessly. Uh, you know, when a, when a priest who's ordained celebrates the Holy Eucharist and brings into, uh, brings, makes present there on the altar through the consecration, the body and blood of Christ, uh, even if that priest uh, were himself uh, in serious sin, that doesn't stop God from bringing about that, that gift of the Eucharist. If, even if the priest himself were, uh, were somehow a rascal, it doesn't stop the ability of God to use that priesthood of his to bring about the forgiveness of sins uh, in the person. So everything that we hold uh, about the church is not an excessive trust in the humanity of the church, because the humanity alone would be prone to failure and to sin. But the humanity, enlivened by the divinity, kept together as one by the divinity, worked on by the divinity in the sacraments, it's, it's that combination, that coming together of the human and the divine that we have in the church that ensures we have access to God in a way that we'll never be deprived of as long as this world endures, because we have the promise of Christ that his church will last until the end of time. I will be with you all days, even to the end of time. Absolutely. Great stuff, Monsignor. Well, I think I, I, we're, we're done with the questions. Let me check to see if there's any comments before I let you go. This has been oh. great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, so we have, a, we have our communications person that pulls out quotes. I was thinking, man, I, she's got a lot of great quotes to pull out of there, man. There's just, there's so, that's, I, that's one thing I, forget, I, I missed from your preaching is I just, those turns of phrases you have, they're very quotable. So not, I'm, 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 maybe I'm blowing steam a little bit, but um, do we have any well, comments? I don't have any more grades to give you, so I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> grateful, thanks. Uh, so uh, do you have any other comments or anything? Cool. 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. So that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, we, we really didn't announce this, so we'll definitely in the future have to publicize it more. But but yeah, I think I think it was great. We'll be putting this in a podcast. And uh, thank you, Monsignor, for your time. Definitely, we got to try to do this again. I've enjoyed it, as I always enjoy all of our conversations. Um, and uh, say hello to everybody in Philadelphia for me. Uh, and I think we're good to go. Why don't you conclude? Can you conclude us with a prayer and blessing before you well, go, Monsignor? And thank you. And it's great talking to you again. And you say hello to everybody I know in Rally for me. <laughs> Will do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I ask your presence by the power of your Spirit on everyone who hears our words this evening and who may even hear it after the fact in the recording. I ask that you send the light of your spirit upon them, that you send the consolation of your spirit into their hearts, that you dispel all darkness in their lives and around them and in those they love, and that you lead us all through receiving the great gift that we receive, especially in this season of Advent when we're presently speaking, through the great gift of your son's presence among us, to the that we come to the light that you have prepared for us, that you shine on us for all eternity. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, descend on you all and remain with you forever. Amen. Thanks once here.